This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. His name is Neil Duane, and he is the global investment strategist for Allianz Global Investors, which is the uh, part of Allianz uh, proper. They own a number of different properties. Uh, Allianz Global Investors and PIMCO being two of the largest. Uh, this is really quite a fascinating conversation. If you are at all interested in what makes the global economy tick, what the impact of central banks has been and will likely be in the future, what's going to take place with Brexit and why the rise of Asia in general and China in particular is going to be so important to the world over the next three to five decades, you will absolutely find this to be a fascinating conversation. So with no further ado, my conversation with Allianz's Neil Duane. My special guest this week is Neil Duane. He is the global strategist with Allianz Global Investors. He's also a portfolio manager. And you've been with Allianz since 2001. But your background is uh, that of a portfolio manager. How did you make that journey from actually running money to being more of a global market analyst? Well, I suppose um, the way I looked at it is I've always been an investor since uh, uh, since the late 80s. Mm -hmm. um, and I got a tremendous career opportunity to run the European equity business for uh, Allianz in Frankfurt. So I commuted. That was 2001, is that 2002, right? yes. Okay. So, so, so I'd worked for the firm for a year. This is when Allianz merged with Dresdner. Mm -hmm. And so we started to put together all the asset management Man, businesses. This is a lot of giant components. Yes. Dresdner, PIMCO. So, you know, we have been a... You know, a set of uh, a fund, uh, sorry, a company that's been created out of a set of boutiques around mm -hmm. the around the world. A serial acquirer. Well, yes, I think we haven't. We we started like a lot of firms buying teams rather than buying businesses because mm -hmm. you often don't need everything else that comes with the business if you already have the infrastructure. Right. But so for me, it was a career opportunity to become a CIO, lead 130 investors. But having done it for 13 years, I needed a new challenge, Barry, mm -hmm. to be honest. And I so I chat to my boss. I mean, some people used to say, if you're bored of London, you're bored of life. Well, after thir <laughs> after 13 years, I can tell you I was bored of Frankfurt. I know that might sound slightly disloyal, but uh, I needed a new challenge. And we decided to try and help Allianz get its message out, we needed an investor to start talking to clients, talking to people like yourself, so that we could cross the divide and help our clients understand how to look at the risks in the portfolios and how to think about the returns they were looking. So that's my job now is I travel the world trying to help clients navigate the markets. So you're located in London now, is that yes, correct? that's correct. How does the entire UK asset management industry compare to the United States? Because they're two very distinct styles of doing business that there are although funny enough i would say they're very similar you know really? th there's a there's a big retail business which is very domestically biased so you know when you're in the us all they want to know about is the nasdaq and the s&p 500 and what's happening with the muni bonds the uk is the same about uk equities and uk property and what you're referring to is universal the home country bias yes exists everywhere it does even in even in countries like australia where there's such a tiny percentage of the global equity market, and yet when you look at Australians' portfolios, it's disproportionately Australian. The same with the US, the same with the UK. Yes. 
do you try and dissuade people from that home bias? Um, I, I suppose I try. I, I think at a, at, on the equity side that the home bias is, is, is hard to deflect simply because if you own Pfizer, you'll buy, you own a global company anyway. Right, in fact, it's listed right. in the US is, the, is maybe the challenging dynamic. But mm -hmm. I think as we think about the world in the next 20 or 30 years, I mean, one of the themes I'm talking to clients about is the rise of Asia. Mm -hmm. Because whatever we think about President Trump and his trade policy, the next four and a half billion emerging people are going to be out of Asia. Sure. They're not in the US or in Europe. We've, we've emerged, we've over leveraged, we've over consumed, the growth is not going to come from the West. And if, and if you look at from a valuation perspective, we're recording this late in 2018, uh, US is, let's be generous and call it fully valued. Yes, emerging markets tend to be less expensive, and China seems fairly cheap. Yes, and, and I, I would definitely agree with that. What coming back to your earlier question, though, I think the the challenge I have when I talk to UK or US institutions is, I tend to feel that many of them is now quite, I would say, risk averse. Mm -hmm. They're managing their liabilities; they're not optimizing their returns. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think when you talk to retail clients. You know, they're in the game to make money. You know, they don't want to be in the markets when they're going down. They want to be in the stocks when they're going up. Right. And so they're looking for something completely, completely different. So, so the audiences, I think, are now the, much the same. I think you, you with your 401k, you're probably as, as, as institutional as, as CalPERS would be. You know, you're looking at how do I get from A to B in the next 10 years before I retire? How much money do I need? What risk can I tolerate? What drawdowns? It's exactly how I think the big pension funds are thinking about it now. Now, the only question I have is who trades more frequently, CalPERS or the average 401k participant? I honestly can't answer that question. Well, you know, I'm not sure I, I, I can answer it either. What I, what I would say, though, is I think... Um, the trading has really started to hurt the markets. Mm -hmm. um, even some of our you know, longest and largest sovereign wealth funds now have a rolling 12-month performance horizon. So when you say trading, do you mean the high-frequency traders or do you mean just the tendency to trade more than they used to? P people just have this tremendous tremendous tendency to trade and i think investment you know when we think about the decision you and i would have made when we were younger to buy a house right. you weren't sitting there thinking well i might flip it in three months time right you were saying i'm going to live here you know i hope it's a good investment i hope it goes up in price and and that all goes up in value but even if it doesn't you have some place to live exactly can you say the same thing about a an equity portfolio. Well, I think actually in the end you can, but I, I sense, you know, one of the big journeys that's changed and it's accelerated post the financial crisis has been, I think we, I talk to more and more traders now and fewer and fewer investors. And I think that's the same with corporate management. Corporate management is not investing for the next 10 years. They're investing for the next three, you know, three years whilst their incentive plans are at work. So when you say you speak to more traders than investors, is that because there are more traders out there or are people who are formerly investors now have a tendency for shorter holder periods, more turnover, just more activity, despite everything we hear about indexing? Uh, yes, I think people's investment time horizons have really shortened. Um, they don't want to sort of win by just holding something that goes up and down like a rising tide and eventually trebles they want to get out if it's going to fall 30 percent and then get back in and i think that makes this really really tricky for us as investors because i would say the view of the world um that i'm talking to clients about is obvious for the next five or ten years mm -hmm. but for the next five or ten weeks you know i have as little clue as anybody else <laughs> you'll interview about what will drive the markets and yet client, that's what clients are looking for. And I, I, call, I, I suppose I see that as spurious accuracy. Huh. Quite, quite fascinating. 
There was a quote, Neil, in one of your recent <clears throat> research pieces that I found intriguing. And you wrote, quote, the American dream is still alive, just not in America. Tell us what you meant by that. Well, I think when, um, when we were sort of tapping into the uh, momentum behind uh, President Trump's or candidate Trump's ca campaign, you know, it was about making America great again. Mm -hmm. and, and I think one of, the, one of the appeals that he had to many parts of the American electorate was that it felt like the world was passing them by. They were able to watch, you know, what the Kardashians are doing on Twitter and, and, and other things, but they couldn't live the same lifestyle because the opportunities were not offer, offering themselves but, in, to, inside the U.S. economy. But, but that's an opportunity set of two or three. <laughs> you know, for the average American, are they really thinking, if only I could endorse products? Is, uh, is that really the appeal or is it something more fundamental? Well, well I, I think it's actually elemental. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think that that's why I think politics is under a lot of pressure across the West at this moment in time, because people feel they take for granted that fridges are cheap and TVs are cheap. And, right. you know, the lifestyle has since the, since the 1970s has become more affordable. Sure. But now they're not getting a pay rise. Some of them are not even getting a job. And so the ability now for, I think, young Americans to earn more than their parents is the lowest um, percentage right. First in, in, generation in that's not going to yes. surpass their yes. parents in terms of... Whereas I think when you go to somewhere, and I, I can only, what I normally do is tell clients to travel around Asia and particularly to go to China, but mm -hmm. don't go to Shanghai or Beijing. Go and see the panda bears in Chengdu or, right. or the terracotta warriors in Xi'an. The people who take you there, the people who drive you there, um, they work hard. They want to educate their kids. They want to get rich. And that's they're, what they're I mean. They're all very entrepreneurial. They're all very, very entrepreneurial. And mm. so I think that's probably what America felt like around the turn of the century. People had a can-do Which attitude. century? <laughs> not, not to be not to be a wise guy, but turn of the nineteenth century, turn of the twentieth century, turn I, of I the twenty-first century, turn of the twentieth. Mm -hmm. You know, I just think you know when America suddenly really got going. You think about um, World War One, and you know America barely had a, a navy, and you know within two years you'd built the biggest navy in um, you know the world had ever seen, mm -hmm. and that's despite the British being the naval power of, of that time. And I just think there was that can-do attitude, that can-do spirit, that teamwork. I sense that that's moved to Asia now. Huh, that's quite fascinating. When when we look at, uh, you mentioned a lot of people, a lot of the U.S. electorate might have been left behind. It's very, very specific when, when we talk about the economic recovery, but it's not evenly distributed. Depending on where you live, your education level, and what a industry sector you're in, you're either enjoying a robust recovery or no recovery at all. It, is the United States the only country that suffers from that sort of bipolar, there are some very, very lucky haves and there are a whole bunch of have-nots who are not participating? I think the West suffers across the board with that. I think the one the country West. that doesn't is Japan. Uh -huh. where society has been much more even. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting, Barry, one of the themes I'm talking to our clients about at the moment is inequality. Right. And you might say, well, what's that got to do with investment and, and, and asset management? Well, It's got a ton. Uh, well, but the thing is, I think we may have been making the world less equal. Because if I incentivize you against your share price, and that's mm -hmm. the only thing that makes you rich as a manager, then that's all you care about. That's the goal you manage. And that makes the world more and more unequal. Are you uh, a believer in the theory of short-termism that a lot of corporate management is so focused on their stock price 
they're not making longer term investments? Definitely, because I think not only I think and it's clear in the US that I think this this addiction now to share buybacks, borrowing money from the credit markets, history has always shown management buy their stock at the worst prices. They Mm -hmm. never buy them when nobody wants it, i.e. really cheap. Right. They buy it right at the top of the market. And I think that's what we've been seeing throughout 2016, 17 and 18. And it's a uniquely US phenomenon. And the other thing, just wrapping in the inequality theme, just so you can see where I'm trying to go with it, is yes, the share buybacks are incentivizing the CFO to borrow money and leverage the balance sheet sure. and potentially underinvest, mm-hmm. limiting the longer term growth prospects of the uh, of the company going forwards. But who's the biggest seller of US equities? It's got to well, be it's, insiders, It's right? the management. Yeah. Management. So we're to blame for this because we have over-incentivized them in one way. And when we do, when we've done quite a lot of work on um, sustainability and this inequality theme, what is interesting, and it's funny, I'm here at Bloomberg. Family-owned companies do it better. Mm-hmm. They know they're passing on the franchise to their children or to their grandchildren. So what do they do? They make sure it's invested. They make sure the roof's working. They make sure the central heating's there, so that when they pass it on to their children, their children then are running it for their children. They never sit their hat thinking, how do I maximize returns for my share option scheme? Right. The fascinating thing about the share buybacks, and I can talk about that forever, A, it's the result of a 1990s Clinton era attempt to limit C-suite executives' compensation, and they put you know a, a hard dollar limit and eh, do as much stock options as you want. Didn't work out the way they expected. I agree with you about stock options but and buybacks, but every time I bring it up, all my quant friends say the same thing. Hey, when we look at the world of companies that do buybacks versus companies that don't, buybacks outperform the companies that don't. How do we how do we justify being negative on buybacks when they actually help performance? Well, I think I think maybe what we're going to find is that it helps performance in the short term. But at the consequence of significant underinvestment, the loss of productivity, you know, when you and I think maybe outside Silicon Valley about all the industries where America has kind of stopped being a world leader, right. and I'm thinking traditional manufacturing, some of these, some of these type of areas, it's because actually there was no R and D, there's no capital equipment um, in, uh, investment, <laughs> and and the pushback I get is Apple spends billions of dollars on R and D, as does all these other companies. <laughs> I couldn't possibly agree with you more. I think you're absolutely right. I would much rather than see a company de-IPO, un-IPO, I don't know if there's even a word like that, I would rather see the money, if you're going to return capital to shareholders, give people dividends and let them spend the money on what they want after you've exhausted all your R&D options. Look at General Motors. They bought $10 billion worth of stock while all their competitors were creating new electronic cars, building infrastructures, filing a whole bunch of patents. To me, it's unconscionable that a company in as competitive a market as GM is would waste a penny buying back stock when they're technologically behind all everybody else out there. Let's talk a little bit about what's been going on around the world with, you mentioned popularism and the political changes that income inequality has wrought. What do you see happening in Brexit? Because from across the ponds, it looks like, wow, I thought we had some issues. That seems to be just completely mayhem from our perspective. Um, Barry, you're absolutely right. I mean, there's no doubt, I think, for the last two years, everyone has been very confused about 
how Brexit would work out. Hard Brexit, soft Brexit, no Brexit. It's like a Dr. Seuss uh, book. It is, apart from the fact we have always said there can be no soft Brexit. Brexit is a hard, you know, whether we crash out or whether we leave with a deal, both mm. of them are hard outcomes. There isn't any sort of cuddly toy way of getting from, from A to B. And we're already seeing all sorts of negative ramifications for Brexit, especially in London. I don't know how the rest of the country is feeling it. But when we look at where companies are relocating, when we look at people, uh, especially executives and professionals, relocating to, to Paris, relocating to Frankfurt, you're right there in the thick of it. What, what do you see going on pre-Brexit? Well, I think what I would say is because there's this drop-dead date of March the 29th, 2019, mm -hmm. the, the dynamic is we're getting closer to a point where companies, including Allianz Global Investors, have to decide, do we need to change anything inside of our operating business model to stay legal in France or See, um, if you had a headquarters, it'd be a problem. But since you don't. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and actually, because we're smaller in the UK than we are in Europe, it's less of a problem for us than right. some of our larger competitors who are based in London. Right. Um, but what I, what, what I would get over, and I think this comes to the populist side, you know, that's in the US, is as, well, as, you, sure. as you've seen, you know, with your recent elections, including the midterms, America is divided the way the UK is divided over Brexit. 52-48, with 84% of the population. All I can tell you is two years on, it's still 52-48. Is that a fact? Because I keep hearing, there's two interesting things I keep hearing. One is, if we have a second referendum, people have learned that they were lied to in the first referendum, that a lot of the, the scare tactics about how much money was being sucked out of the national health system, and people realized there was a lot of nonsense they were fed, that all you need is one or two or three percent of the population to change your vote, and they're talking like five or ten percent might swing. But then I hear the the data you give, and you're not the first no, person to I, say we're, that. No, we're we're convinced that the the vote would still be identical, uh, or, or virtually the same. You wow. know, so That's so, so so the country's still divided. What I would say is the the dynamic that is that is at work is that it was a dreadful election that might might ring a few bells with you here mm -hmm. in the US the tone on both I don't know sides, what you're referring to the, the tone on both sides was awful yeah um and i think with the bank of england coming out with a very very you know doomsday scenario of of the yes. world post brexit we're back in project fear territory which simply annoys the half of the country who don't buy right. the project fear story now the other interesting thing <coughs> i read recently um was um and and i know how our court system works i'm not uh, fully cognizant of how your system works, but an advisor to somebody in the high court said, hey, if the House of Lords decides to vote against Brexit, they're allowed, they're not bound by a non-binding resolution, uh, which was what effectively the referendum was. Um, yes and no. I mean, basically, the Houses of Commons, the, the, the 650 MPs that we vote mm -hmm. for, um, get a second chance. So if, if they approve it, the House of Lords says no, it comes back to the Commons, the, the Commons then have the final vote. So the now, House, do they need a supermajority on no, that? Or is no, it just, just a straight-up straight majority? majority? So I think the really? scenario that we're facing at the moment is Theresa May's deal looks great from a European perspective. Right. And that's why it's probably not going to pass in the House of Parliament. Now, let me jump in and ask you, are the Europeans going to give anybody anything better than a terrible deal? Otherwise, they'll encourage other members to Correct. leave. Correct. So, so you've answered your own question, Barry. They're not going to offer us a better deal. So it's this terrible deal or a hard no-deal Brexit? Yes, but the key for me is, is a hard no-deal 
i.e. going to WTO rules, and then the ability to pick up the phone to President Trump and say, hey, can we catch the next BA plane to the US and do a deal, is of much greater upside to the UK than this deal with Theresa May. Uh But you need a change of leadership. So I think for international investors like yourselves, the calibration is, can the Conservative Party change leader if Theresa May's deal is thrown out and not face a general election? Because... The way, the way I try to, if I'm honest, answer the Brexit question is Brexit is nothing compared to the election of a Jeremy Corbyn-led Labour government. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about some things going on in technology. I was intrigued. Again, this comes from something you published recently. You said that a new tech cold war could disrupt the global economy. Explain. Well, I I believe that whilst trade has all the headlines and the president's um, policy on tariffs is clearly disrupting many of the large traded uh, goods areas of the of the global economy, I think there's a Washington Washington consensus building that. China has been cheating on tech. Bloomberg itself launched a, um, a a huge piece that showed that there were chips on some of the motherboards that are being used. Business Week, yes, yes. absolutely. And that was, you know, f- but I think that goes to the that heart. That was of- Apple and Amazon. That was yes. uh, they all cl- did, pushed back and said it wasn't correct. But I think uh, Bloomberg stood by the business. Yeah, and, and I think you ha- you're absolutely right to do so because when you look outside the headlines that everyone's focused on on trade, you're actually seeing Washington, virtually across the entire government um, uh, uh, process, mm-hmm. is now identifying that you don't want to have suppliers or Chinese supply ch- parts of the Chinese supply chain in your products, especially telecom chips, things yes. like that. And so I, I think what is happening is that America has decided in the same way as Russia is still the old political mm-hmm. warhorse, China is now the new strategic threat in technology. Mm-hmm. So why does that matter to investors? Well, the American business model of you know many of the famous American technology companies is you design it in Silicon Valley and you make it in Asia. Right. And that's one of the things that annoys the president, of course. Um, now, if you suddenly can't trust your supply chain because they may be cheating on your IP or they may be putting stuff in your products Even that worse. allows them to listen and watch and spy, um, then you have to start readjusting your supply chain. So I think when you think about the fact that, say, TSMC is the largest supplier of anything to Apple. Taiwan Semiconductor. Yes. Then can you trust, I'm not saying you can't at the moment trust the, the Taiwanese, but Taiwan is part of China. Well, the Chinese say so. <laughs> the Taiwanese, they not so much. Well, I, I, th- I mean, I, for me, I think it's fairly certain China will fight for Taiwan. I'm uh-huh. not too sure whether America will fight for Taiwan, but mm-hmm. ma- hopefully we don't have to get there. But my point is that the, 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 the supply chain of the tech industry is now so complex and it's so Asian focused. And a lot of it relies on cheap assembly in Vietnam or China or elsewhere. And that assembly is where your confidence in the network could fail. Mm -hmm. So I think under President Trump, the Americans are going to force disruption into the supply chains. You're either in the American ecosystem or you're going to be in the Chinese ecosystem. And just to balance this out, this isn't just a Washington thing. In the summer, you will remember that um, Washington shut down ZTE, the second largest tech company in China. Well, They're what, a big telecom, right? Yes, but a big tech company as well. What did, they, what did Beijing learn about that? Well, they learned they can't trust American tech because mm-hmm. if you pull the American tech out, the company collapses. Uh-huh. So from a Chinese strategic perspective, the next 20 or 30 years... We need are, our own tech. Are they, are they going to rely on American tech if it can get taken away? Well, the answer clearly is no. 
And if you then look at where President Xi wants to go in the next 20 or 30 years, he wants to become a world leader in many of the industries that the Germans, the Japanese and the Americans still dominate. And the reason he wants to is because he doesn't want to buy it from America or Germany. He now, wants to make it in China. So let me ask you this about ZTE. It wasn't that America wasn't going to sell technology to ZTE. They said, this is on a restricted list. You can't build ZTE tech into American tech because we don't trust its ability to safeguard secrets. Yes. We think that this is part of the Chinese intelligence agencies. That's right. So I think in the end, President Xi wants his own Chinese ecosystem. And you're going to, we're, you and I are going to have to choose mm -hmm. because you can't swim in- Do you want it in... cheap or do you want it good? Those are going to be your choices. Well, I, 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 what, I'm a bit more bullish of China than that. You know, I think you know, creating 4 million mass grads a year means a lot of what they're doing in AI and everything is going to work right? because they can throw a lot of resources at it. I don't doubt that um, for a second. And, and so, so the way I look at it is there's going to be a Chinese ecosystem for China and its friends- which I would, when I close my eyes, think most of Asia will inevitably pivot to, to China. Makes and, sense. And then you have an American ecosystem. Now, it's probably obvious in the short term that Europe would be part of that system and probably Japan. Until, until it becomes cheap enough. Or until the, the growth in Asia reaches a point where the world sits and says, who cares about 370 right. million rich Americans who are now over leveraged? Right. Let's go with the 5 billion people who are still coming up the value chain and still offering huh. the growth opportunities. That, that's quite fascinating. Let me push a little bit back on the whole Chinese intellectual property argument. And, and there are two questions that come up. And really, these are two very distinct issues. One is... It seems that hackers in China managed to access lots of corporate America's deepest, darkest secrets. We've seen how fast after, I don't remember which company was hacked, but very quickly the Chinese military had a stealth plane that should have taken them decades yeah. to develop. Yeah. It's clear that they got access to a lot of military technology from the U.S. But second, and perhaps more important from the corporate sector, if you want to build a plant in China, if you want to make semiconductors... Well, you sign it. You don't. You have no obligation to do that. But if you do, well, we want you to sign this agreement, says China, where you're going to assign us the usage of some of your patents, and we're going to share this. And we're going to share that. And the American companies willingly handed that over. So when people say Chinese are stealing our intellectual property, I understand this is an arm length corporate relationship. The American corporate executives willingly signed. No one was under duress. They said, sure. So so how are they stealing this intellectual property? Uh, Barry, you're absolutely right. I think that's one of the Chinese responses is that we've offered them the prospect of 1.3 billion people to sell to. So bring your stuff and let's, you know, let, let, let's make money together. I think the interesting thing you mentioned, uh, US corporates, I think the interesting thing, if you think about the current commercialization of technology, and I don't just mean tech in this, you think about Boeing, it goes out, it does amazing things with the DOD and all this other stuff, right. you know, spacecraft around the moon and all the and, and some of that new equipment ends up in a 787. Right. So what do the Chinese do? They simply t buy one. Right. They take it into a warehouse. They drop it. Right. Take and they it go, apart. Oh, look, these are the glues they're using. These are the new ceramics there. You know, so so uh, eventually the commercialization of, of, of you know, edge, innovation. Edge tech, innovation. It's a five-year head start before someone else reverse yes. engineers yes. it. And that comes back to the earlier comment that you and I were having about share buybacks. Uh -huh. Because if you're going to have to stay ahead of the game, you've got to keep investing 
ahead of the game. You have to be way ahead of the game. Yes, and you have to keep pushing back on the, you know, that leading edge. And I'm not too sure that we have CEOs now who are sitting there going, how do I stay where I am for the next 20 years? Huh. And, and my, my mentality, having worked in Germany for 13 years, was if you meet a Volkswagen or a BMW, they know they have the best car in the world at the moment. Let's call it the Golf. Right. They know that the Koreans and the Japanese are coming and the Chinese are coming. So they know the next Golf, seven years down the line, has to be like 20% more efficient, half, half as heavy and twice as fast, or, you know, whatever right. the improvement is. And they simply design it to be there in seven years time right then when they launch it they are still 20 percent better than the competition and what are they doing the next thing for the next seven years they're getting right. doing the exact same thing again they're always engineering the excellence into the next one i would argue with you that the golf is the best car in the world <laughs> uh, but but the concept is is fascinating so i want to ask you about what you had written recently about central banks you had said quantitative tightening might mean less growth for the West, for the whole world, who are you referring to? Clearly, we have the U.S., Japan, and Europe that has been going through different phases of quantitative easing. The U.S. has moved off that. Japan is behind us. Europe behind that. What What do you see happening with central banks around the world? Well, what I what, the first thing I'd say, Barry, is we don't see the Bank of Japan or the ECB doing anything to rates in 2019. Really? So we're no still change. Going, no change. Um, wow. And obviously, in the U.S., as you as you know, recently Chairman Powell started to suggest that maybe we're closer to neutral than he'd implied in October. Mm -hmm. and, and, therefore, um, and therefore, the markets took that as a sign that maybe we were reaching peak interest rates in the US. So may maybe in 2019, you and I'll be chatting about the fact that we're at the peak now, whatever that means for the underlying economy, if interest rates are already peaking um, uh, and, you know, um, and, and we, we fear for the economy. But the quantitative tightening point that I uh, that you asked in the, I think is potentially the biggest story of 2019. We have been speaking with Neil Duane of Allianz Global Investors. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and come back for the podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue discussing all things global macro. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at MIB podcast at Bloomberg.net. Be sure and check out my daily column. It's at Bloomberg.com slash opinion. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast. Neil, thank you so much for doing this. I've been looking forward um, to having this conversation we were previously scheduled and then got snowed out. I don't remember if it was I got stuck at home or your flight got canceled. I don't remember which it was, but something crazy happened with the weather. I, I, I think it was just the weather here. I think I was in New York, but I only have to walk here. I think you right. had to travel I think, here. Right. I think I got uh, <laughs> It's called global warming, though, Barry. You've got to get with the program. <sighs> See, I think the big branding mistake that was made many years ago, if they would have called it global weather volatility... Nobody can deny that. But none of us could have spelt it. Uh, that's true. That's, that's the problem. <laughs> Global weather volatility. It doesn't sort of ring off the tongue, it, really, does it? It does not. <laughs> so I, the one thing I didn't get to talk to you during the broadcast portion that I really wanted to discuss was um, something you've written about quite extensively, which is ESG investing. So let's, uh, let's discuss that a little bit, uh, environmental social and governance investing, you've written that you think this is in the process of 
being mainstreamed? Is that a fair word? Yeah, definitely. I suppose the way I would look at it, particularly from a, an American audience's lens, is I think all investment managers have been very conscious of their fiduciary duty. Mm -hmm. And I think many of us have had a very, for the last 30 years, very narrow definition of what that means we turn up and vote and we check how management get paid we check the audit audited accounts work that but it's of, a very minor superficial group of uh topics well it's i think not, it has in, broad. it has in the past whereas mm -hmm. i think now many main investors around the world and many governments and therefore regulators around the world are sitting there saying is it possible to it to help allocate capital in a a nicer way, a greener way, a more friendly way. So mm -hmm. if you think about the environment, you would remember in the mid-90s, Shell announced they were going to sink one of the new, uh, North Sea platforms in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, you know, right. somewhere where it was deep. And everyone was horrified that that's what the oil industry were up to. And so you and I would sit there going, no, we don't want, you know, huge bits of iron just rusting at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. That's not environmentally how we want to behave. But so, it's cheaper. It worked it, well, out. it might have been cheaper at that time. That's a different different point that uh -huh. the pursuit of profit doesn't necessarily always uh, uh, I think get us where we want to go if you think about the use of child labor I think if you were investing in a company that was you know by design uh, abusing uh, you know the children around the world you and I would sit there and say that's not how I want to invest I, I it used to be half of what I was wearing <laughs> was I'm not yes. exaggerating yeah. was you you wasn't it shocking the first time you learned that your sneakers were made by 10-year-olds in Vietnam, yes. it was horrifying when you learned so, that. So I, think the, the, so I I think, therefore, and I suppose what we're also seeing is the arrival of the millennial, the children born after 1985, they are much more conscious of where their food comes from, where their clothes come from. They, they obviously rely on the bank of mum and dad, as you and I know, right. uh, but they are more conscious of the, the impact they have on, on the environment. And, and therefore, we can see the confluence of the, the government and regulation against the rising fiduciary duties is creating this ESG. This is where my theme of inequalities come from, because uh -huh. I think more and more people now want to be seen to be doing what they can to not just make a profit. They want to make a good profit, if I can use good in that phrase. And, you know, you could look at this from a different perspective. I've heard a number of people <clears throat> posit variations of the theme that ESG is becoming mainstreamed because ESG is a good form of risk management. So, for example, if you have good corporate governance and you have a diverse uh, board of directors and you have a lot of women in senior p positions and that there is not a big pay gap between the genders, you basically end up with a company that's not going to be like uh, Uber with the sort of uh, frat boy mentality. It's not going to be um, like the Me Too companies that are being sued left and right because the behavior of executives were so egregious. You basically end up with responsible adult companies, and that's good risk, risk management. What, what are your thoughts on no, that? No, I, I definitely think that is that, that is the case. And I, I think the, the, the risk management can come through in, in many other different areas because I think in a world where we're all having to take some risk to earn a return, mm -hmm. I think we have to then understand how we manage some of those risks. And I think the ESG lens allows an investor to work out what some of those parameters are and whether they want to change their stock picking. Mm -hmm. I think where I sit for the American audience, though, is is that you're yet to be convinced that ESG doesn't affect your returns. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the mega... The general pushback is, well, you know, if you go carbon-free... Yeah. And oil rallies, you're gonna you're gonna miss yes. some gains. Yes, but I think there's increasing evidence now that you can have a good portfolio of outperforming stocks that doesn't 
underperform a good portfolio of, let's say, weaker ESG stocks. So we think the the onus is, is moving in that direction. But I think the, the key thing it, from an institutional perspective, I know there's some leading institutions in the US as well as in Europe who now believe they have to take the lead in this. Mm-hmm. And and I think therefore, to some extent, there's an element of the herding mentality, you know, where some, some of the leaders like a Cowper's head, inevitably a lot of the, the state state pension funds or whatever will head in a similar direction. And what we've seen from the corporate side, you have the CEO of BlackRock writing letters to the executives of the S&P 500, lamenting short-termism. You have the chairman of Vanguard talking about becoming more active in their proxy voting. Those two companies own 10% of every publicly traded company in the world. And what I like about the way we're trying to solve it for clients in ESG is we're trying, we now have 15 analysts around the world who complement our 85 equity and 45 credit analysts. So we're trying to build ESG into all the research we do. And the, the key is, you as an American may have a slightly different set of values from, say, the client I was with three weeks ago in Kuwait. Right. Now they are sure. they are long oil, so they are thinking about sustainability, climate change, and ESG from a lens that's built on an oil economy. Like, right. Let's say if we were thinking we were in Texas rather than in New York. Sure. So the values for each client can be different, and the beauty of what we're trying to do is have the debate with the client about what they mean by ESG, because obviously some clients are not quite sure what it all means, and then when they understand what it means for their portfolio, we can then implement it. As, you know, so that they get what they want. And the last fun fact I'd, I'd just share with you is if you look at, say, a classic index like the S&P, mm-hmm. and despite President Trump not agreeing with it, you know the Paris Accord two years ago agreed we needed to control sure. the climate change to only two degrees. Well, the S&P is currently constituted to deliver you a 3.8% climate change increase. Mm-hmm. because we're allocating capital to a lot of the bad industries. So the first thing we're, or one of the easy things we're trying to do with our clients is to talk to them about, if you believe this, influence how you allocate your capital. Start thinking about being a little more green, is my favorite sort of phrase to shorthand for this. And don't just look at an index. Huh, because, quite fast. because you can then, you can allocate your capital <coughs> allocate your capital differently. And I think that's the key. We can start to shape the world by making making the capital move to where we want it to as, as investors. And, and let me push back against you on, uh, on behalf of Texas for a moment. Texas, to their credit, has shifted their economy. They're a big technology location. They're a big real estate location also. You look at Dallas, Houston, Austin, um, go down the list of, of uh, San Antonio. They have become a very tech-friendly area, and the rise and fall of oil doesn't slaughter Texas the way it did in the 80s. The 80s, they lived and died on that, but it's quite fascinating. All right, I know I only have you for a finite amount of time, and I have a million other questions, but I want to get to my favorite questions I ask all of my guests. (laughs) So let's let's jump right into this, and feel free to uh, uh, make references to things in the UK that American audiences may not be uh, <laughs> understand or be familiar with. Um, so tell us, what's the most important thing people don't know about your background? Um, I would probably say I'm, uh, as of last month, November, uh, 30 years married with four fantastic kids. 30 and, years. And, and I, um, I, you know, I work to live. I don't live to work. That, that's great. Who are some of your early mentors? Well, it's very interesting. I would actually say my father-in-law and my father. My father was a self-employed businessman who went bust. Mm -hmm. And he taught me everything you don't want to do 
in the real world. So as I've managed my career, I have thought about not making the mistakes that he did. I know sometimes we want to, be, as fathers, be remembered positively. I right. remember my father's mistakes rather than his successes. They're still good lessons. For sure. But my father-in-law actually inspired me to become an investor because otherwise I'm afraid you would have been interviewing the world's most boring chartered accountant. <laughs> so I, he, he was one of my mentors because as I moved into investment management, he was already an investor. We chatted over the Sunday you know, dinner table about life, the universe and markets. So he really helped kick off my, uh, my career. Huh, quite interesting. You mentioned investors. What investors influenced your approach to looking at the world of, uh, of capital? Well, I, th I think although I've read a lot of books from you know, many of the famous investors, um, after my early, um, I would say quite UK specific um, expertise or uh, experiences at, at Flemings and at, uh, and at Climate Benson, I joined JP Morgan in the mid 90s. And I really learned about fundamental research, about teamwork, about the global network that you, you could access. So I feel a lot of my colleagues in, 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 the, um, in what I call the great JP Morgan before it was bought by Chase, uh, I think JP Morgan, by the way, is still probably great. Um, but that was really, you know, a lot, of, a lot of my colleagues at the time really helped me to step up my game in terms of how I think about investing. You mentioned books. Tell us about some of your favorite books, finance, non-finance, fiction, non-fiction, whatever you like. Well, let me tell you a, a funny anecdote. My, my favorite books of all time are still The Lord of the Rings. I used to read that every summer as a kid. <laughs> and the reason for me was uh, back in 1973, we had the, um, the blackouts because of the miners' strike. Uh -huh. And at the school I was at, every evening under candlelight, our, our, our teacher used to read us The Lord of the Rings. Really? And so for me, the first you know, two and a half books until you know the, the the strike was over you if you can imagine sitting in your classroom it's dark outside it's windy and and you've got a candle and someone's reading you about you know the lord of the rings it was just the most memorable i nearly didn't go and see the movies because i didn't want it to destroy what i thought of the world that we created in that period and and to give uh, peter jackson credit the movies were really pretty they were, true to they the were. vision yes weren't they? they were so so what i would say is i i read a lot of books um I am actually, funny enough, celebrating my 30th wedding anniversary with my wife by going to the Antarctic next year. Oh, really? And so I'm reading books about Shackleton and Scott. So have you read Endurance? I have. That's an unbelievable book. How's it not it? been made into a film? That's what I. I, I think it. <laughs> I think it has to be. It may have recently been. By the way, the story of the book is quite fascinating. The book was originally published uh, way early. And did nothing, and then twenty years later, someone buys the rights to the book, reissues it, and it becomes a big yes. hit. I, I agree with you. I can't believe that hasn't been a movie. But because, because I'm because I'm not a millennial, the book I always go to. I think it can be a bit of a hard read, and I'm sure you've probably interviewed him and and, and read the book as well. But the book, when I think about where technology may lead us, is the Singularity is Near by Ray Kurzweil, who works mm -hmm. at Alphabet. I have not interviewed him, but feel free to make an uh, introduction. <laughs> I would I would love to. That that isn't an easy read, is it? It isn't. But the thing is, it tells me where the people who understand technology think we can go. Mm -hmm. Now, what is scary, at the end of the book, he actually thinks that we could be immortal. Uh, if you place yourself into <laughs> a, you know, place some version of your, uh, for lack of a better word, soul into yes. a computer, but really it's uh, your your personhood into a piece of technology, whether or not that's actually you, whether or not that is really immortality, is debatable, but I guess it's just a function of 
how advanced the and, technology. And the reason I find that is my prior life, I was a classicist. Right. So when I when I think about the books I like rereading, they're all the great myths and legends of Roman. And, Give us an example. Uh, well, just even going back to see, you know, Homer's Iliad. I mean, I can sure. read it in Greek still. I can read it in English. Um, I just love it because it's a it's a time of myth. It's a time of legend. And it just inspires, inspired me as a youngster. But even now, I love the stories because you just think, you know, this is how mankind was thinking three or 4,000 years ago. It's not all that different from, you know, the Odyssey, the Iliad. And um, I'm trying to remember who recently recommended Joseph Campbell's Man of a Thousand Faces. All those original Greek stories, they're no different than Marvel Comics or any no. of the superheroes. Yes. Uh, superhero movies from today. It's yes. the same yes. narrative arc. Ray yes. Dahlia was the one who recommended oh, okay. that. Oh, okay. That, that's kind of a, a fascinating... Uh, so that's a nice list of, of books from yes. the yeah. um, from <laughs> from Lord of the Rings to something a little challenging, back to the classics. <laughs> I like it. Uh, so what has changed since you've joined the industry? What do you think is the single biggest shift we've been seeing? Personally, as I alluded to earlier, I think it's the pressure for performance. Mm -hmm. I think clients tolerance for loss in the short term has become very, very um, acute. And and I feel the, the other thing that concerns me is, can you imagine, you've been in the game as long as I have, can you imagine what bond investors are going to feel like at the end of this 37 bond bull market when they end up with a 37-year bear market? And, and here we are in a year that looks like market's going to be flat to marginally up or down with bonds also down. Yes. Not, nothing really... Has worked. It is working out yes. well. Although the day before we recorded this, uh, with dividends, the S&P was up about 6%. By the time this broadcasts, that number <laughs> is not likely to be spot on, whether it's higher or lower is anybody's guess. Um, so what are you excited most about? You mentioned China earlier. Yeah. What do you think is the most exciting thing that, that you get to uh, see? Well, I, I think on a 20 or 30 of you, it's about Asia, the rise of Asia. I'm very excited. The, the companies you meet there, they're just getting started in terms of how the markets are going to develop. Um, I would say right at this moment in time, because I, I feel like I want to be slightly edgy for your people. I love the UK. Mm -hmm. I look at the valuations of the UK. I look at the valuation of sterling. I think everyone has given up on Brexit, including the British, and therefore it's priced for a disaster, which I don't think is going to happen. You think it's sold too too low yes. already? Yeah. Oh, quite quite interesting. Um, tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience. Well, you know, I I I actually um, was going to when you, when I saw the question, I was thinking about this two two ways. When I failed in Germany, it was because I thought as a Brit and I didn't think as a German. Right. So although I was there as an agent of change, I didn't sit on the other side of the table and think, how do I sound? How do I get them to think in a slightly different way? Right. So, so for me, I have learned, I think, in my management style, and I'm, funny enough, I'm now trying to do this with my wife and my children, to put myself in their shoes so that I see how they see me. Uh -huh. And so uh, that's the key that I think as I've got older, I've got better at thinking or anticipating what the person on the other side of the table is, you know, where they're coming from, what their issues are. So whether it's a Frenchman or a Japanese or an American, I sit there trying to work out some empathy with that person so I can, I, I can learn to be more impactful. I think when it comes to investing, I've always looked at, I, and by the way, I, you know, uh, one of your other questions is, you know, what advice would you give people? My advice is you're always going to make mistakes. You're always going to have to learn from your mistakes because you and I know you never learn from your winning. That's you, right. You just sit there going, hey, I'm great, and, right. and you move on to the next you, win, you In hope. fact, when you win, you don't even stop and ask yourself, 
am I good or did I just get a and little so lucky? And so when I look at where I've, when as a portfolio manager, when I've, when I've failed, it's because actually I have completely overappreciated the edge I thought I had. Mm-hmm. I've therefore underappreciated maybe things that are not inside the company's control or inside the market's control. But more importantly, I've then built the wrong portfolio because I've had too much of it. I then haven't right-sized the position. So another book I'd recommend, funny enough, is a poker player's book called uh, by um, Annie Duke called Thinking in Bets. Sure. Because what she says about poker players is you get dealt your hand, you know it's a, if it's a losing hand, you just fold. If it's a potentially a winning hand or a winning hand, you then play. But as you play, you're watching the dynamic of the cards in front of you. And the moment the dynamics change, you stop playing. Unless, of course, the dynamics don't change and you know you've got the winning hand. Hmm. And I think that's what you and I are doing every day in the markets. You have to sit there and what is the market telling you? Because the market's every day always telling you something about your portfolio. And you've got to filter out all the noise. And you've then got to sit there and say, have I got a winning hand? And if you haven't got a winning hand, you and I know the first cut's always the cheapest. Huh. Interesting point. By the way, today as we're, we're recording this, the market is telling us we don't really believe that there's much of a trade deal. That that's what's going on. Uh, that's what's happening today, um, with with a lot of red on the screen. Um, what do you do for fun? What do you do outside of the office uh, for giggles? Um, uh, being a family guy, I love to spend time with my with my wife and family. But I'm a golfer and a skier. That's mm-hmm. what I've you know that that's what I've been uh, I've resorted to. Huh. Okay. And our last two questions: If a millennial came to you and said we're thinking about going into finance as a career. Uh, what sort of advice would you give them? Well, I'm I, I'm fairly clear about this because having got four millennials as a father, I've had to think about how to get them into the real world as quickly as possible and off the uh, bank of mum and dad. Um, but I suppose I, I look back on it and I enjoy what I do. And so I when I meet a, a lot of friends' children and they come, you know, spend a day with me or a week with me, I have a sense of whether they love the markets. Mm-hmm. Now, I think it's a phenomenal privilege to manage other people's money. And the thing I love about the markets is it's as close to being a professional golfer as I will ever be. Because every day the golf course is different. Every right. day the competition's different. Every day the weather's different. Right. And there's always something fascinating going on in the markets. And I think to have no a job doubt. that is just so refreshing is a remarkable privilege um so i would want to know that you know my millennial was interested in the markets rather than thinking this is how i get paid because you won't be any good at it and our final question what is it that you know about the world of investing today you wish you knew 30 years ago do you know i i think um Although there's not a lot I would want to change about, because I do think you have to learn by, by your mistakes, um, I do sometimes feel that I have been quite stubborn in the type of industries or names that I, I want to own. That has often left me, I may, maybe being a classic European, not understanding the opportunities of an Amazon or you know, right. or, or you know, some of the new technologies, because I don't, I'm not interested in some of that, and I recognise that that's probably forced me to to not anticipate how the world can change and so it's ironic that i now talk to our clients about how the world is being disrupted by you know the mobile phone the millennial and the internet and yet i was sitting there for the last 20 years going you know that how does that change the stocks i own Mm. and yet it's changing them every day and that's maybe where where I've, i've i've when i look back and think the power of disruption if i'd nailed that 30 years ago it would have helped me think about the type of companies I want to own uh, very differently. Huh, quite fascinating. We have been speaking to Neil Duane 
of Allianz Global Investors. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, and you can see any of the other 240 or so such conversations we've had previously. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. You can find any of these podcasts at Overcast, Stitcher, Apple iTunes, Bloomberg.com, wherever finer podcasts are sold. I would be remiss if I did not thank our crack staff that helps put together these conversations each week. Medina Parwana is our producer, and Carolyn O'Brien is our recording engineer. Uh, Taylor Riggs is our booker slash producer. Uh, Atika Valbrun is our project manager. And Michael Batnick is our head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Radio.